Welcome to the Jerusalem Jones Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Hansen, a.k.a. Jerusalem Jones of Treasures in Time. That's my company, and this is my podcast. I'm a bit of a thespian, so let me bring history to life with a pinch of theatrical flair. Don't forget to subscribe as we plow into the past. This series is called Dig Deeper, the Untold Stories of Biblical Archaeology. Episode 2, Digging Up Moses. Anyone who visits Egypt is likely to come face to face with perhaps the greatest pharaoh who ever lived, Ramses II. His monuments are still spectacular today, rising out of the desert sands as if to proclaim his unquestioned greatness to all the inhabitants of the land. But if we could conjure up, say, Sherlock Holmes, what issues might he raise? A question. Was this the pharaoh of the Israelite exodus? When exactly did the Israelites leave Egypt? And were they ever in Egypt to begin with? These are the questions on which serious archaeology is asked to comment. Of course, the archaeology of Egypt has yielded a rich treasure trove of artifacts. But where is the evidence of Israelites having lived in Egypt for some four centuries, as the Bible relates, prior to their exodus under Moses? Not a few competent archaeologists charge that there simply is none. Israelites never lived in Egypt. They basically fabricated the story. But why would they fabricate a story about having been slaves for 400 years? If they were going to make up a story, shouldn't they have made one up about being princes or rulers of some great royal lineage? Indeed, being slaves in Egypt is precisely the kind of story that no one would make up. Interestingly enough, the place to begin when looking for a possible date for Moses and the Exodus isn't in Egypt at all. It's in the land of Israel. It was the famed archaeologist William Foxwell Albright who, convinced that the biblical record is accurate, began digging in Palestine in the 1920s and 30s in search of the remains of cities presumably destroyed by Joshua during the conquest of the land. What he found amazed him. There were burn layers in the archaeological strata of sites identified as cities destroyed by Joshua, including Bethel, Debir, and Lachish. Such destruction dated to the late 13th century or 1200s BCE, the end of the Late Bronze Age. Tracing the timeline backwards 40 years, corresponding to the time the Israelites spent wandering in the Sinai Desert, one arrives at around 1260 BCE as a date for the biblical exodus. That means that the pharaoh of the exodus would have been none other than the illustrious Ramses II. 
but immediately there are problems. There are simply no archaeological remains of a sizable class of Israelite foreigners living in Egypt in the 13th century BCE. Nothing, not a single potsherd, has been found to corroborate the story of the Exodus, or of a huge group of Israelites under Moses wandering in the Sinai for four long decades. No archaeological sites have been found in the Sinai that can be linked to the biblical account of these wanderings. Just as frustrating, and perhaps even more serious, the most famous of Joshua's conquests, the ancient city of Jericho, was, according to most archaeologists, either uninhabited or a small, unwalled village at the end of the 13th century. When Albright and others theorized that its fabled walls came tumbling down. It's easy to argue that the cities identified as Bethel, Debir, and Lachish, though certainly destroyed by somebody, were by no means destroyed by Joshua. Where does that leave us? With the sober conclusion by the minimalist archaeologists that the entire biblical account of the Exodus is a complete fabrication. In fact, the consensus of archaeological opinion today does not support the biblical account of the exodus from Egypt at all, preferring to see the story on an allegorical level. In other words, don't take it literally. But this is where the mystery only begins. Because if we're looking for evidence of Israelites living in Egypt, we have to know what century we're talking about. Returning to the 13th century Exodus theory, developed by Albright and his successors, and assuming that the conquest under Joshua would have taken place at the end of the late Bronze Age, it's asserted that the first Israelite cities and towns began to appear at the beginning of the Iron Age, which some archaeological surveys have now dated to around 1170 BCE. But, as we've seen, the famed Merneptah Stila, which declares Israel lies desolate, can safely be dated to 1207 BCE, decades before the entity called Israel even appeared in the archaeological record. The implications of this are astounding because however the Israelites arrived on the scene as refugees from Egypt or, as the minimalists theorize, evolving from Canaanite society itself, we have to look at a period earlier than the late 13th century BCE. And if we follow the actual biblical timeline that dates the Exodus to 480 years before the foundations of Solomon's temple in 966 BCE, we come up with a date of 1446 BCE for the great departure from Egypt. When it comes to the supposed lack of solid archaeology 
confirming Joshua's conquest of Canaan. Bear in mind, ancient cities appear in the archaeological strata as layer cakes, with multiple cities having been built atop the ruins of earlier ones. As Albright himself explained, Throughout the history of a city, newer occupation levels are built on top of older ones, i.e. earlier occupation levels are lower, with more recent levels closer to the surface. For example, a city may have existed at a particular spot in the 12th century BC until it was burned down by an enemy. Rebuilding could have occurred at some later time at the site, only for it to have been destroyed again. For example, the presence of clearly identified burn layers at Tel Bet Mirsim have helped archaeologists to distinguish the various strata of that site. Now consider the fact that there is indeed archaeological evidence of the fall of Canaan's fortified cities at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, traditionally dated to between 1550 and 1500 BCE, but easily revised to about a century later, in the late 1400s BCE, the traditional biblical dating for the invasion of Canaan. Bottom line, it's quite possible to argue that the incoming destroyers were none other than the Israelites under their illustrious commander, Joshua. This is certainly a minority opinion, but it's a responsible one, and we shouldn't ignore it. Indeed, there's a growing body of evidence that does match the Bible's version of history. And for all the claims that the archaeology is lacking to corroborate the presence of Israelites in Egypt, we have serious evidence of a group of foreigners of Asiatic extraction living in the heart of Egypt's Delta region. We start with the excavation of the archaeological site in the Nile Delta, the biblical land of Goshen, known as Tel el-Daba, the ancient Egyptian name of which was Rawati. The site betrays signs of the presence of Asiatics, that is to say, Semites, living there as early as the 19th century or 1800s BCE, that just so happens to be the same time frame in which Joseph was said to have come down to Egypt along with his family. Joseph, of course, had been sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, only to rise to great power in Egypt. In one of the greatest stories of world literature, the brothers ultimately come down to Egypt themselves in search of food during the famine. There they confront the brother they had betrayed many years before. In a moment of sublime reconciliation, Joseph declares to them, Maharu va'alu el avi, ve'amaltem elav, 
כה אמר בן חי יוסף, שמני אלוקים לאדון לכל מצרים. רדה אלי, אל תעמוד, וישבת בארץ גושן, והיית קרוב אלי, אתה ובניך, ובני בניך, וצונך, ובקרך, וכל אשר לך. קלקלתי אותך שם, כי עוד חמש שנים רעב, בן תברש אתה, וביתך וכל אשר לך. הורי, and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you, lest you and your household, and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Excavations at Rawati have revealed the remains of rectangular huts made of sand bricks in which the residents lived. A house of distinctly Semitic style, characteristic of northern Syria, was also discovered at the site, dating to Egypt's 12th dynasty, specifically the reign of Sesostris III. It is the sort of house that the biblical patriarch Jacob might have lived in after he came down to Egypt at the behest of Joseph. Later on, during the 13th dynasty, there are archaeological remains of an Egyptian palace, apparently the home of an official of some kind. However, its owner seems not to have been Egyptian at all. Interestingly enough, The portico of the structure was supported by 12 pillars. Might they somehow be a reference to Jacob's 12 sons? It has in fact been suggested that the villa and the surrounding semicircle of two-room houses are nothing less than the homes of the biblical patriarch Joseph and his brothers. In the same immediate area, we find an ancient cemetery with 12 graves and artifacts linking the tombs to the houses. One of the tombs was quite substantial and of pyramidal shape, notwithstanding that only pharaohs and queens were ever buried in pyramid tombs in Egypt. Within it were found the remains of a large statue with a mushroom-shaped hairstyle identifying him as an Asiatic and over his right shoulder a throw stick, the Egyptian hieroglyph for a foreigner. Interestingly enough, while most ancient Egyptian tombs contain at least some bone fragments, none were found here. A coincidence, perhaps, but the biblical text does record Joseph's command that his bones be brought out of Egypt and into the land of promise. אנוכי מת, 
ואלוקים פקוד יפקוד אתכם, והעלה אתכם מן הארץ הזאת, אל הארץ אשר נשבע לאברהם, ליצחק וליעקב. פקוד יפקוד אלוקים אתכם, והעליתם את עצמותי מזה. I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. The children of Israel remembered their oath. And when they left Egypt during the Exodus, Moses took Joseph's bones with him. The bones were buried at Shechem, which is today's West Bank city of Nablus. In the year 2000, the tomb, considered a Jewish holy site, was looted and razed by Palestinian rioters. Returning to the debate among scholars, our minimalist friends are quick to assert that such evidence as the palace and the statue at Rawati is inconclusive at best. This could have been anybody, and it may well have been. But on the other hand, if this was not Joseph, who was he? Also during the 1800s BCE, during Egypt's 12th dynasty, a canal was constructed, diverting some of the waters of the Nile to Lake Fayum to the south and west of the Delta region. It is still in use today, bearing the name Bahar Yusuf, the waterway of Joseph. It has even been theorized that the biblical patriarch Joseph himself had the waterway built to regulate the flowing of the Nile and to ensure ample harvests. After all, the biblical record depicts him overseeing seven years of plenty prior to the famine that ultimately descended on the land. As for Rawati, it seems that at some point during ancient Egypt's 14th dynasty, the name of the city was changed to Avaris. This city was the capital of another group of Asiatic foreigners who ruled Egypt between the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom. They were known as the Hyksos, whose ethnic heritage also contained Semitic elements. The biblical book of Exodus declares that a new pharaoh arose who did not jo know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Some argue that this was none other than the first of the rulers of the Hyksos, Semitic raiders from Asia, who moved into the Nile Delta during Egypt's second intermediate period. Avaris, which began as a tiny outpost of only a few dozen people grew over time into one of the ancient world's most populous cities. 
the excavated tombs from 20 or more settlements in the area are clearly Semitic, as well as remains of pottery and weapons, including non-Egyptian-style daggers. At a later time, however, the skeletal remains of these people indicate a descent from prosperity to poverty, the bones themselves revealing a lack of food and a lifespan of only between 32 and 34 years. Does this correlate with the biblical description of slavery during this time frame? At one point, the excavations reveal a high infant mortality rate with only 40% of males growing into adulthood as opposed to 60% of females. Does this correlate with the Pharaoh's command that male Israelite children be killed? The Pharaoh said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. There is even a papyrus from Egypt's late Middle Kingdom, the 13th dynasty, bearing distinctly Semitic names of domestic servants, including Menachem, Yisachar, Asher, Shifra, the name of one of the Hebrew midwives recounted in the book of Exodus. As for the Hyksos, they are ultimately expelled from Egypt around 1520 BCE by a pharaoh named Ahmose, which, curiously enough, means in Hebrew, brother of Moses. Some have even tried to link him with the real pharaoh of the Exodus, though his time frame is too early even for the strict biblical chronology. With the 18th dynasty, Egypt's new kingdom arises, which will see the construction of a series of magnificent tombs in the famous Valley of the Kings. The biblical account brings us exactly to the new kingdom for the date of the Exodus, specifically to the reign of Pharaoh Amenhotep II. Archaeology shows that the city of Vavaris was in fact abandoned at this time, an event that may well represent the Exodus. Evidence from inscriptions even attest to a crisis in the ninth year of Amenhotep's reign, at which time he decreed the destruction of the images of all the gods, even including Amun-Re. The Exodus, after all, was the singular event in which Egypt's gods were rendered impotent. In any case, the identification of the Exodus with Pharaoh Ramses II remains appealing, especially for those archaeologists who see the invasion of Joshua as the cause of the destruction of various Canaanite cities, especially the fiery destruction of Chatzor. As for the route of the Exodus itself, most are in agreement that it must have crossed the so-called Sea of Reeds, called in Hebrew Yam Suf, a fairly shallow and marshy body of water to the north of the actual Red Sea. 
but not a single archaeological location in the Sinai Desert has ever been identified as a campsite of the Israelites during their 40-year period of wandering, except for the city of Kadesh Barnea, which some have tried to link even with Mount Sinai. Kadesh, by the way, is linked to the Hebrew word kadosh, which means holy. And the traditional location of Mount Sinai, where a monastery has existed for many centuries, has nothing to identify it beyond the fact that it's an imposing mountain on the south end of the peninsula. Where does all this leave us, Watson? To be sure, a good deal of skepticism is the scholarly rule of thumb when it comes to the strict biblical chronology of events and even the events themselves. In fact, a number of alternate theories describing the origin of Israel have arisen, completely discounting any sort of exodus from Egypt. Bottom line, the biblical account amounts to a literary minefield in which nothing can be said that isn't debated, reconsidered, and often completely refuted. So gird up your scholarly loins, Watson. The battle is only beginning.